John 18, verse 28. And what we had seen in the first part of John chapter 18 is <clears throat> Jesus under, under trial. He's been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed by Judas. He's been taken to the high priest's home, first Annas, and then to the son-in-law, Caiaphas. And yet again, as we're reading through this, these passages now, as we are leading to the cross, we're, we're very close here to Jesus you know, being crucified. We're going to see him being taken and led and whatnot. But again, got to remind yourself that Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is the one that is leading and organizing. Nothing's taking Jesus by surprise. Nothing is coming out of left field to Jesus. He's in complete control as he's, as he's carrying out the will of the Father. In John 18, verse 4, what we read last week, it said this, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. And so, so Jesus is the one that is leading everything through. Nobody is taking his life from him. Understand that Jesus has come to this world for this very moment, and that is to lay his life down. John 10, 28 said as much. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. So we move now from this religious trial that's been going on where the Jews now take him to Pilate and, and look to conduct a civil trial, looking to get Rome on, on their side to see Jesus executed ultimately. And we're going to see a couple of trials taking place here. This is kind of our outline here because starting in 18 verse 28, we're going to see this first trial before Pilate. And then in verse 39, we're going to move on to the second trial before Pilate. John just goes from one to the next. But in the other Gospels, we see that there's a little bit of a, a break in between where Jesus is taken again to uh, another place, to Herod, Anipus, under trial here. And so here they come now. And, and just to fill this all in a little bit more with the other Gospels, what we see here is Jesus under this religious trial taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, and then before the Sanhedrin, uh, this, this council of all these religious leaders. And then the civil trial is there before Pilate, then taken to Herod Anipus, which John doesn't record, but Luke does. And then back to Pilate for this second trial. So that's what we're going to be looking at here today. Look, look at verse 28 with me in John 18. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Now, it's early morning. Jesus has been up all night. And, and, and understand here that even before Jesus is going through some of this unlawful trial, which it was, this is a very unjust trial going on because it's being conducted at night. Shouldn't be doing that at night. There's not... Adequate witnesses there. They need to have witnesses. This wasn't supposed to be done during the Passover uh, time. And, and so everything's being done um, without any kind of justice being meted out. It's an unfair trial. It's an unjust trial. And even before all these things are unfolding, like think about what Jesus has been going through as he's been taken from place to place. In fact, uh, we got a little map here uh, of Jerusalem. Remember, it all started in the upper room, right? Where Jesus is, is having that, that Passover meal, his disciples, the last supper is taking place. And then they move from there to 
from the upper room, they go over to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is way over, kind of on the other side of the temple. It's a bit of a trek, all right? And it's there in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's arrested by Judas, and, and they go through that big scene. And then from the Garden of Gethsemane, they're taken over to uh, the high priest's house. First of all, the Annas, and then St. Caiaphas. Then he's led up again to the Sanhedrin, the council chambers. From there, he's taken up to Pilate now, all right? And then from Pilate over to Herod Antipas, and then back to Pilate's quarters. And then eventually from there, he's led away to the cross. So understand that even Jesus has been going through this, this whole outpouring with his disciples. There are the Garden of Gethsemane where he's been praying through the night. He's not had any sleep here now. He's being taken from one place to the next and under this unfair trial. This is enough for most people to, to break under this, to, to kind of just sort of come apart over this. And yet here's Jesus just functioning through all this, continuing to just be led, but being the one that's actually leading all these things and, and giving his life so sacrificially and willingly in all these things. So it tells us here in verse 20 that they go to the, the praetorium. The praetorium was the Roman, you know, a governor headquarters. So here's Pilate. He's the prefect there over Judea. Interesting that, you know, there was a, a lot of debate over, you know, a number of years ago over the existence of Pilate or, or the, the, um, authority of God's word, the accuracy of God's word, because people were saying there's no real record of a pilot in, in documents, in history. We have no real record of that. I think the Bible is just really kind of just made up. Until 1961, they discovered what's known as the pilot stone there in Caesarea Maritima, which was a kind of a, a general headquarters there. And so the pilot, uh, the, the pilot stone that, that described Pilate as the prefect over Judea, all of a sudden, a lot of the critics of the Bible are having some of these things answered for them, much to their chagrin, right? Very cool, though. And you go to Israel today, and you see the pilot stone, a replica of that there at Sisera and Maritima. Very interesting. But then, so at these festivals, which is Passover right now, the, the governor would come from, you know, the station headquarters in Sisera and Maritima and move down to Jerusalem for a few days during the festival and stay at the Praetorium, most believe it's the, the fortress of Antonia, which is right near the, the temple there, as you see in Pilate's quarter. So here's the Jews bringing them there. But notice what happens here in verse 28, right? They themselves, it says, did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. It, it kind of boggles your mind to think about the insanity uh, of some people, because here's the Jews now thinking, hey, listen, uh, Pilate, thanks for the invite. We can't go in because if they go into Gentile house, they're going to feel like there's probably something that we're going to come in contact with that will make us ceremonially unclean. Because at Passover, they emptied their house of all things that were of, of leaven and, and, and sin, and it's a very cleansing kind of a thing. And, and so they're thinking, if we go into your house, a Gentile house, well, we're going to come in contact with something that will make us ceremonially unclean. We can't do that. But let's keep talking about murdering this innocent man. It's just ludicrous. Again, I think of the, the kind of hypocrisy that exists. But it's the very thing that Jesus had to call the religious leaders out so often in his own ministry. It tells us in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. 
You know, it can be the same for us oftentimes, can it? Where we put on this act or this air of, look at how religious I am. Look at how good I'm being. Look at how pure I, I want to be. And we, we make a point of kind of focusing on some of the minute things of Christianity or religion to, to look at or, or to make us think that we're being very self-righteous. Well, you know, I heard you went to a, a movie last week. Well, I don't go to the theater. No, no, that's too much for me. But then we totally neglect or overlook areas of like, you know, anger or pride or lust. The things that defile inwardly and yet we make a big deal about, oh, I don't do that. Oh, no, I don't do that. I don't listen to that music or I don't go to the theater. I don't do this. And yet we can be struggling with all these things that we just kind of overlook. How do we need to be careful that we don't make a big deal about minute things that the Lord isn't concerned about? And overlook the things that he is concerned about, the things going on in our heart. Because those things can easily be hidden. And the, the Jews here are looking to hide some of the bigger things and putting on an air of, oh no, we're very religious here. We can't set foot in a Gentile house. But we're okay murdering an innocent man. That's all right with us. It's, it's, it's very ludicrous and crazy. And yet this is what's being carried out here. Now when it says that, you know, they wanted to... Um, that they might eat the Passover. Well, just so, again, kind of timeline here. Passover meal's already taken place. Jesus has done that the night before his disciples. So what mostly they're talking about is just the, after Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for the whole week. And so that oftentimes just began to be identified as the Passover, that whole period of time. And so they're talking about that whole week here and the meal that they'd be eating. They don't want to be defiled, that they might partake of the Passover, which would have been, talking about that whole week of of unleavened bread the festival that continued right on but moving on in verse 29 Pilate then went out to them and said what accusation do you bring against this man and they answered and said to him if you were not an evil doer we would not have delivered him up to you so he just kind of makes some general statement right Pilate's going well what what cause do you have for me to come and and, and accuse him or, or put him on trial what and they're like listen if he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't have brought him to you. I mean, that's kind of all they get. He's just a bad guy. He's an evildoer. They got nothing specific, right? Especially anything specific that's really going to bring Pilate on their side. So what they do and what the other gospels show us that John doesn't reveal is that they start kind of labeling Jesus as being a guy that's fighting against Rome. Oh, this guy's, man. He, he, Pilate, this guy's bad news for all of you. Because he's telling people not to pay the taxes. If you look at, at Luke chapter... 23 verse 2 they start saying that you know he's telling people not to pay their taxes he's leading in a real revolt against rome ultimately and he makes himself a king he's telling people don't listen to caesar listen to me that's what these jews are ultimately saying and so they're trying to bring a cause to get Pilate on their side but again they're completely lying over these things this isn't what jesus has been doing they're painting this picture which again is super ironic Because the charges they're bringing against Jesus are the very things that they were hoping their Messiah would do. See, all along, they've been waiting for a Messiah to come and overthrow them of this Roman bondage that they've been under and to bring them into liberty and freedom once more as a nation of Israel. These are the things that they've been wanting their Messiah to do. But because Jesus hasn't done these things the way that they want him to, now they're using these against him. Oh, this is what he's doing. But yet they want it all along. So again, just the lunacy of what is transpiring here is just, it's, it's ironic, it's tragic that this is what's taking place. And then in verse 31, 
Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Now, let me give you a bit of, of context and history here as to kind of all that's unfolding, because it helps us to sort of paint the picture of what's happening with Pilate right now. Because Pilate is on real thin ice when it comes to his position with Rome, all right? He's the, the governor over Judea. He's Rome's representative. But he's on thin ice because at a previous time coming into the nation or coming into Jerusalem, he came in with his army and they're all carrying their banners with images of Caesar on it that they bring right into the temple. And so the Jews looked at that and go, this is idolatrous. And, and, and a riot kind of broke out over these things to where Rome had to step in and sort of bring a, a, a calm and a stop to this. And then at another time, Pilate used the treasure, the temple treasury money to fund an aqueduct project that he was doing, which again caused the Jews to go, what are you doing, Pilate? You're robbing from us to build more of your stuff. And it led to, again, another revolt that Rome had to step in and bring an end to at, at great bloodshed. So basically, Rome's looking at Pilate going, Pilate, you keep stirring it up, man. Like, you got to bring some calm here, okay? You got to chill out a little bit. Strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. So Pilate right now is looking at all this going, I got to be very careful, man. I, I got to be chill. So he's kind of just trying to brush this off. You guys take care of this. You deal with them. You take this in your own hands. But there's a problem. See, what do the Jews say to Pilate? They, they say, in, in, at the end of verse 31, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And that was true because two years prior to this, Rome had taken away their right of capital punishment, which was a devastating thing for them. Why? Because they saw this as God's word being broken. How so? Well, back in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob was blessing his 12 sons and, and pronouncing a blessing upon them, it tells us in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that when he got to Judah, this is what he said. He said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So a scepter was a symbol of you know, dominion and authority. And it got linked to, again, their, their right of capital punishment. Shiloh was a, a term they used to refer to the Messiah. So what the Jews have, have been thinking all through this time is that, listen, we're not going to have our right of capital punishment, our freedom in these areas. We're not going to have these things taken from us until the Messiah comes. So two years prior to this now, when Rome takes away their right of capital punishment, rabbis began to go through the streets, tearing their clothes, putting on sackcloth, throwing dirt on their, on their head, saying God's word has failed. It was a devastating moment for them. But little did they know that God was at work through all this. And their Messiah was right there in their midst that they just didn't recognize. And in fact, God's word was more accurately being fulfilled in all these things. Because the next verse tells us this, that, that these things um, happened, that the sayings of Jesus, verse 32, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. And Jesus spoke about those things there in, in John Chapter 3, verse 14, John 8, verse 28, John 12, verse 32 to 33. Jesus spoke about how he would be high and lifted up. When the Son of Man is lifted up, speaking about the way he would die on a cross. All through the Old Testament, it spoke about this Messiah that would come well before he came and how he would die. 
Zechariah 12 talks about they looked upon him whom they pierced. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says that he was, he was broken, he was pierced. Psalm 22 says that his hands and his feet were pierced. Speaking of crucifixion. Speaking of crucifixion before crucifixion was even invented and practiced. The Bible had it all laid out that Jesus would die this way. That when Jesus was crucified, it would show that he's the one fulfilling these scriptures accurately. Fulfilling the very things that Jesus said. So in other words, the rabbis going through the streets saying God's word has filled us. Little did they know that God's word was coming to fruition in an even greater way. Oh, how we need to hold on to the Lord and hold on to hope in his word. Because oftentimes things unfold in a way where we think, has God has God abandoned me? Has God failed me? Has God let me down? And little do we know what God is actually doing and the wheels that are already in motion to fulfill his purposes and plans and accomplish his will in an even greater way. That's so good. Well, verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So Pilate's trying to question Jesus. Is what these guys are telling me that you claim to be a king, is it true? Are you a king? And not only are you a king, but he says, are you the king of the Jews? It's interesting that this is a title that Jesus never proclaimed in his ministry. In fact, that term king of the Jews is used about 18 times in the Gospels. 17 of those 18 times is used during these trials and into his crucifixion. The only time it's used outside of that was at his birth. In Matthew, when the wise men came saying, we seek the one born king of the Jews. The wise men used that term, but Jesus never used that term. And so the Jews are trying to drum up these lies to try to get Pilate to go, oh, he's a threat. He's a worry. He's claiming to be a king. This can't, this can't be. This isn't good for Rome and good for Caesar. They're trying to drum this up here. So Jesus asked him, are you asking for yourself? You know, are, are you asking this here now? Uh, about He's trying to get some clarity on these things. In other words, saying, are you, basically what Jesus is saying is that, are you... Asking here um, for yourself. In other words, are you worried about what this might do for you? If Pilate was thinking of a Roman king, well, it would mean then a a lot of political rivalry and and a threat again to Rome's position. Jesus would have been viewed as a rebel in that situation. But if it meant that he's asking on behalf of the Jews as a Jewish king, well, then that was, you know, could set aside political matters then. Wasn't a, a, as big of a deal. And Pilate's not sure how to respond. He's, he's basically saying to Jesus, what, what have you done? Who are you? What, where do I go with this? And so Jesus seeks to assure Pilate that there's no need for alarm. Look at what Jesus says in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now... My kingdom is not from here. I love that. See, what Jesus is saying, and he's looking to ultimately kind of put Pilate at ease. He's saying, my kingdom is not in competition with Rome's kingdom or with Caesar or with you, Pilate. 
Jesus' kingdom is not according to the world's way of doing things or according to the world's value system. It's not going to be built on politics. It's not going to be a matter of voting. It's not going to be advanced through war and fighting. Jesus has come to establish something far greater than just a political, worldly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying it's not going to be in the world one day. He's saying my kingdom is entirely different than that of the world's. Oh, understand that Jesus is going to come again. And he will set up his kingdom here on this earth that's going to, again, be preeminent and prominent and be the only kingdom of this world. And it'll be a a kingdom of peace and righteousness, praise the Lord. But when he came his first coming, he came to establish just that rule and reign of God in the hearts of men. He came to set up that kingdom of God in the hearts of his people where we see God put on the throne of our heart as king. That's the kingdom that Jesus came to establish first time. That wasn't in competition with any other worldly kingdom. It wasn't of this world. See, the heavenly kingdom is going to be based on love and sacrifice and righteousness. All things demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. David Guzik said this, Christians must take care that they live and serve with the power demonstrated by the cross. Not the power of Rome. The key to living in Jesus' kingdom is not found in trying to rule over others or things but in being more fully ruled by God. That's what we desire to see happen. That's what Jesus came to establish. That's what he desires desires for you and for me. Are you being ruled by God? Have you laid yourself aside? Have you said, Jesus, I want you to take up prominence and reign in my heart and in my life to where I'm subject to your kingdom. That's not of this world. That's not about this world. His kingdom is of an entirely different plane with different plans and unique purposes. Well, Pilate, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, Jesus came into this world for that purpose of revealing truth. To reveal the truth about God, truth about us, truth about sin, truth about salvation, truth about how we gain eternal life in and through faith in Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the truth. And those that are, are subject to him, that have allowed him to have reign and rule in their lives are those that hear that truth and follow that truth, that have become subjects of his kingdom and, and participants and beneficiaries of his kingdom, you see. It's through hearing his voice and obeying his voice that you're of the truth and and by which this kingdom advances and moves forward. Well, Pilate then says to him in verse 38, well, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate asks, what is truth? That's an important question to ask. It's a question that you and I all have to come to terms with. What is true? What is right? What is the truth? And this today gets so muddied and yet it's so important because our eternity rests on it. What is truth? What is true? And today we've just kind of made a, a shamble of this. Like it's, it's gotten so muddied where, where Ruth, truth is relative. Truth is subjective. Truth is, is where somebody can say, well, that's my truth. It may not be your truth, but this is my truth. What does that even mean? Like people just now make truth whatever they want it to be, right? Truth just gets so, 
so watered down and so blurred. I mean, this would have been a great help to me when I was in school. I would have loved that. I would have loved him. And I'll say, hey, teacher, thank you. But that's your truth. That's not my truth, you know. So just give me an A, okay? Like, I would have really enjoyed that back when I was in school, but that wasn't the case. There was absolute truth when I was in school. And now it seems like that doesn't need to be the case any longer. And it's important for us to realize what is truth. And today we have a lot of people that will believe different things, even on spiritual matters, matters that they are claiming to be what they need for, you know, eternal life. Well, I believe this. I believe this is what happens. I believe this is what I got to do. The question is, well, what is true? Oh, you might believe that firmly. You might, you might be very convicted in that, but is it true? Where does that come from? Is that dependable? You see, we have one truth here. It's in the word of God. And what's interesting is that here's Jesus standing before Pilate who embodies truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the word of God doesn't talk about a truth. Hey, everybody, here's something that this might work for you. Here's a truth you could try. The Bible says this is the truth. This is what you need. This is not a way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And here's Jesus standing before Pilate, the very embodiment of truth. And yet Pilate is is failing to grasp that. And he just kind of asks this sort of, you know, nonchalantly. He just kind of throws this out with, uh, with cynicism because he doesn't even stick around to hear the answer. It just says, what is truth? And when he said that, he went out again to the Jews. He's not, he's not looking for answers. He's just kind of throwing up his arms. Ah, what's truth? Who can know it? Well, we can know it because God has delivered his truth to us right here in the word of God. And the, this truth is, is absolute. Truth is something that has no error, no fault. And that's what we find in the word of God. Critics will say, oh, the Bible is full of contradictions. It's full of errors. Really? Ask them. Can you show me? Well, yeah, yeah that's... It's all over the place. I just read it. It's all, it's, just go ahead, show me. Where's, the, where's some error or some contradiction? They'll have a hard time finding something. Challenge them on that. Because it's here that we find no fault, no error. And it's interesting, what does Pilate say now? He comes out to the Jews and what does he say about Jesus? I find no fault in him at all. Pilate's realizing this guy is True. He's right. He's straight. There's no, there's no fault. There's no crookedness in him. He is true. But yet he's failing to appropriate that, personalize that for himself. Now, after chapter 38, this is when, or after verse 38, this is when Jesus is taken to Herod Antipas. Another trial goes on. And then he's brought back to Pilate for his second trial. And we pick it up in verse 39, which says, but... You have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So it was a custom at the Passover for the Jews to request the release of a prisoner of Rome, one of their own. And this was something that Rome was happy to oblige him because, again, during the Passover, there was a a whole lot of political fervor and, and passion again passover was when they all thought this is when our our leader is going to show up 
when, when the Jews thought, this has got to be the time our Messiah is going to come because the Passover all spoke about deliverance out of bondage and into freedom from Egypt. And this is what they celebrate. So they thought, man, this is great time for the Messiah to show up and deliver. So everybody came to Jerusalem for the Passover with great patriotic fervor thinking this is going to be the time. This could be it when we're going to be set free. People were trying to kind of make it happen at times, right? And so the Romans thought, well, let's give them one of the prisoners. Maybe that'll appease them, pacify them a little bit. They won't get into such a, a frenzy over these things and we'll help them out. So it's a tradition, a custom that happened. And so Pilate's thinking, this is my, my way out. This is the way that I can release Jesus to them. They want a prisoner released, I'll give them Jesus. That's going to make my life better. That will appease them. But they cry out, no, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, it tells us he's a robber, right? And, and when you look at that word, it, it really kind of speaks about a man who's an insurrectionist, a, a revolutionary. He was a rebel that I think the Jews probably looked at as a hero to them. A hero because here's Barabbas, the guy that's trying to lead now a fight against Rome, a, a revolt where the Jews go, yeah, that's our guy. But you see, they're choosing a guy that wants to fight for their kingdom and turn aside a guy that wants to give them a better kingdom. I wonder how often we do that. When we choose the inferior things of the world and, and we, we dismiss the better things that God has for us. They want to take Barabbas and give up Jesus. Have we given up the better things of Jesus for the inferior things at times? Because, you see, Jesus always wants to give you the better things. I, I think about just that first miracle he did in, in John chapter 2, the turning of the water to wine. And it says that he saved the best to last. He always brings the better things. And, and, and it just keeps getting better with Jesus. And, and man, how we need to just hold on to Jesus. Because things just keep getting better and better. And he's got something far better for you than, than, than what you'll ever find in the world. What you'll ever find in, in someone else. Jesus always has the better for us. And they're choosing the inferior. They're taking Brabus and giving up Jesus. They're choosing their kingdom over Jesus' kingdom. Well, chapter 19. Oh, we're going to just cruise through a, a few verses here as we continue to look at the second trial. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Now, you know, the Gospels, they don't go into a lot of detail. Just as they scourged him. And then they crucified him. But they don't go into a lot of the details. And not that I want to sensationalize any of this and dramatize it in any way but i think it does us well to look at really what's going on in the hmm, the, the gravity of sin because this is what jesus has taken upon himself here and you know it says that Pilate scourged him this was something that they would do to just inflict torture and pain upon criminals and it was a way of trying to bring about confession on them because they would take a whip. And that's what the scourging was, was a, a, a whipping. They would take a whip of, of these leather strands. And at the end of these strands would have various bone or metal in it. That was meant to just dig into the skin and tear the skin back. They would take the, the, the prisoner, the criminal, and they would take their hands and bind them up above their head and, and cause that back to be stretched out so that skin would just kind of 
just be pulled apart even easier. And what they would do is that they would whip that criminal and, and seek to bring about confession. And if they confessed their crimes, well, the beating would get a little bit less. But if they didn't confess, that beating would get more intense to bring about that confession. Here's Jesus. He's innocent. He's got nothing to confess. Those beatings got harder and heavier. And that skin just began to get peeled back to where his back would have been just bare. And we skip over that sometimes. He was scourged. But think about the pain. and the being. Now, he's God. I mean, I think he could have just come and done these things in some kind of like spirit or just sort of like, you know, kind of removed himself from this and done it in a way where I'll be free from the pain. I'll just kind of go through the motions physically, but I'll, I'll, but I think Jesus took all that to show, man, this is the messiness of sin. This is the pain of sin. Sin is not something to play around with or mess around with because sin is messy and sin, sin brings, brings pain and it's meant for one thing and that is to destroy. Satan throws sin at us simply to bring about destruction and death. And, and Jesus is a picture of what sin does in a life. That's why we need to pray, Lord, come and, and reign in my life and, and, and overthrow this bondage of sin. Because I don't want any sin in my life to be holding me back or to be continuing to bring pain because that's what sin is going to do. We think sometimes, oh, it's okay. It's no big deal. You can't play around with sin because it leads to pain and brokenness. And Jesus is a picture of that. And they put on him a crown of thorns. It's interesting that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, a part of the curse is that thorns would come up and they'd be working these things now by the sweat of their brow. Well, now Jesus has thorns piercing his brow as a picture again of him taking the curse of sin. A great reversal. I'm going to take what man has brought into the world and I'm going to take that upon myself. And he bears that for you and I. He takes all that for himself. And the mocking. They put on him a purple robe. As a way of saying, oh, you're a king, are you? Put on a purple robe and they just begin to mock him and hit him. Man, I would have struggled with that right there. Because when you're being mocked and you can prove them wrong, you want to do that, don't you? And Jesus could have proved them wrong. He could have turned it around on them and said, oh, I'll show you what kind of a king I am. And he could have taken them out. But he didn't. He endured it. He took it on himself. He took upon himself the very effects of sin. And he bore that for you and for me so that we wouldn't have to go through that. And, and we can easily skip over these things. But it's important for us to see what Jesus has done. And and. Just the ramifications of sin. 
And to thank the Lord that he took that for us and he's freed us from the consequences of sin, from the judgment of sin, because he took that for us. And it's important for us to go, man, sin is not something to play around with. Because Jesus endured that for us. How could I ever pick up sin and play with it so loosely when it cost Jesus' life? And pain and suffering. Why would I ever want to mess around with sin? I'm sorry, but that hits me. And it's important for us just to dwell on that and think about that. Well, Pilate, we'll try to get through this, guys. All right. We'll get through there. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Now, this is the second time that Pilate says, and I find no fault in him. And in Luke's gospel, it tells us that he examined him. And that's interesting because this is what the, the priests were to do with all the lambs coming in for Passover as sacrifices. They were to examine them to see that they were without spot or blemish. The lambs had to be perfect for their sacrifice. And here's Pilate examining Jesus and finding there's no fault in him. Jesus truly is the Passover lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one, perfect, sinless. Then Jesus came out, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Man, what a scene here. Because here comes Jesus now. Think about this. Because he has been beaten. He is bloodied. He is battered. Most people would have fainted under the blows that Jesus has received. Most people, some people have died through the scourging that these people had received. They didn't even get to the cross. The scourging was enough to take many out. But here comes Jesus now enduring, I think, probably more punishment than anybody's endured. And Pilate walks him out and he says, behold the man. I don't think Pilate is speaking this with any kind of disdain or mocking. I think Pilate is in complete amazement right now as though he's saying, Jesus is the man. Jesus is the man. I, I have not seen anything like this. He is the man. Behold the man. And I pray that today we are beholding Jesus like never before. That we are beholding a man that we have not beheld before in this way and in this light. To go, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you that you endured all this. May we behold what Jesus has done for us. And who he is to us. Behold the man, Pilate says. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying... Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. 
the Jews answered him, we have a law and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, when the Jews said to Pilate, he claims to be the son of God. Now that got Pilate's attention. That put fear into him where he goes back into the praetorium and asks Jesus, where are you from? Because remember now, the Romans, uh, uh, you know, adopting a lot of this Greek mythology, they had this view that there were these deities that existed and sometimes came down and mingled with, with men and women and even had offspring. Offspring that would come down to the world, like Hercules. Hercules was an example in their mythology of, of a person, that, a, a god that had come down and visited them on earth. And so now Pilate's thinking, is he son of God? And he goes in with great fear, wondering, where are you from? Because he's thinking, if you really are one of these gods, then I'm in deep trouble, is what Pilate's thinking. Oh my goodness, here I'm thinking you're just a regular guy. Now, if you're one uh, a god, I'm in deep trouble. And the reality is, yeah, Pilate, you should have been thinking that way long before this. Understanding who Jesus was. But Jesus answered, or sorry, then, then Pilate in verse 10 said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, nah, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus simply says to Pilate, Pilate, oh, you poor fool. You think you're the one in control here. You think you're the one with the power. There's nothing that you could do apart from God allowing you to do it. God's the one that's in control here. God's the one that's got power. And he's given you the opportunity to lead in this. And basically he's saying, you need to lead wisely here. Because you have a great responsibility. But then Jesus makes a statement here at the end where he says, therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, there's been a lot of debate over who Jesus is speaking about here. Is he speaking about Judas, perhaps? Is he speaking about the Jews in general? Is he speaking about Caiaphas? And, and, and there's a part where you could say all of those fit. But many believe that he's speaking about Caiaphas, who's the high priest at this time, who has the greater sin because Caiaphas was the man that had greater responsibility of knowledge. He should have been the one that was leading Israel to their Messiah, which was Jesus but he's the one leading him to Pilate to have him crucified. Caiaphas, with a greater knowledge, had a greater responsibility. And he's the one now with greater sin because he knew better. And Pilate's guilty, right? It's not that Pilate's innocent, Pilate's guilty, but it's as though there's this degree of guilt here this verse is showing us. And Caiaphas was more guilty because of what he knew. Because of what he was doing. Well, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Jesus said to them, shall I crucify your king? 
And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. The way that these guys are just such, you know, hypocrites here. All their life has been about fighting against Caesar. Now they're claiming that Caesar is their king only to have their true king killed. And then Pilate delivered him to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. Pilate, it says, comes out and he sits in the judgment seat. Pilate again thinks he's the one conducting this trial and pronouncing judgment. But Pilate, little does he know, is sitting in the hot seat. He's sitting in the place of judgment. I've titled this sermon, Who's Really on Trial? Because all through this, Pilate, the Jews are thinking they're the ones putting Jesus on trial. But they're the ones really on trial. They're the ones that have to make the decision. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? Because your eternity rests on that. And, and, and you might be sitting here today going, well, I've just sort of been doing a little bit of judging and checking and rusting through these things, thinking I'm just giving Jesus a chance to maybe prove himself as though you're the one doing the judging. But if you've not received Jesus as your savior, you're sitting in that seat of judgment against you. And that sounds harsh. But I say that to say, Jesus came to take that judgment from you. On the cross, he bore the sins of the world and he allowed the father to judge him that you could be spared from judgment. But you need to come to grips with who Jesus is. You need to come to a place where you say, Jesus, yeah, I need to invite you in to be my Lord, my Savior, to be the king of my life, to be the king of my heart. Because I can, I can waste away the time thinking, oh, I'm just, I'm just judging things right now. But you're sitting under judgment until you receive Jesus. And once you receive Jesus... You're free from that because he's already taken it from you. What have you done with Jesus? Have you received him as your king? I hope you have today. And that simply means that you've understood that you've been cut off from the Father, separated from the Father because of sin. And you need forgiving. And you need to repent, which repent just simply means to Change your mind, change direction from going your way, the world's way, to go, Jesus, I want to go your way, the better way. I want your kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world. And you repent and you receive Jesus as your savior. That's it. That's all you need to do. And if you haven't done that, don't put that off. I encourage you, ask Jesus to come and be the Lord of your life to be the king of your heart here today. Know that he's got something far better for you than anything you will have apart from him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and just spend some time today just reflecting on these things, just waiting on the Lord here. And that's a heavy word today, guys. That's, it's a heavy thing that we look at, but that's important to do once in a while just to go, Jesus, 
thank you for taking that from me. Thank you for doing that work so that I could be spared from the pain of sin, be spared from death. Lord, I want to live that life you have for me now. Let me stay close to you. Let's stand together and let's just reflect on these things as we worship Jesus here today.